Hey y'all, I'm Tommy Tomlinson, and from WFAE in Charlotte, this is Southbound. Conversations with people from all walks of life about how the South shapes who they are and what they do. Stephen Leatherman is a scientist and academic who has spent more than 50 years researching, writing, and teaching about the constant evolution of our beaches. But you might know him as Dr. Beach, the guy who comes out with a list every Memorial Day weekend of the top 10 beaches in America. This year's top-ranked beach, FYI, is the one at Ocracoke Island on the Outer Banks. Leatherman still studies our beaches and what climate change is doing to them. By now, he's been to just about every beach you could name. This whole thing of becoming Dr. Beach was purely an accident, but it started a long way from the ocean with a boy in his sandbox. Here's our conversation. I want to start at the beginning. You grew up in Charlotte, which is about four hours from any beach. So how did you get to be so interested in beaches? It all had to do with sand, really. Uh, growing up in Charlotte, I was an outdoor person. And, you know, there's a lot of mud around there, red mud. Yes. And I was always getting my uh, clothes soiled. And my mom was very angry about that. So she told my dad, get that boy some sand. You know, it's, he's got to have something to play with. So I still remember it. I was about six years old and a big dump truck showed up. And my dad, he didn't fool around. He didn't know they did it right and dumped this truckload of sand in the backyard, built a frame around it. I tell everybody I had the largest sandbox in Charlotte. And certainly everybody in the community came to play in my sandbox. And I also discovered, you know, with a hose with water, I could make sand castles. So I I didn't really know much about beaches, but then that summer, uh, my uncle had a small place down at uh, Myrtle Beach and he let us have it for a week. So we went down there. That was the closest beach to Charlotte, as you know. And wow, when I saw the beach, that's the largest sandbox in the world, isn't it? And I was just so happy. And there was water right there. So I started building sandcastles on the edge of the water. And I bought my you know, shovel and, and all that. I was six years old. And I just liked everything about the beach. I mean, it's cool and refreshing. I like to fly kites. But when I was flying kites, I was hanging up kites in the trees and the power lines. And it was just, oh, my gosh, you know, there, the wind's always blowing. And there's no, there's no trees and no power lines. And so, oh, and then I, I love seafood. Was this sort of the hook set from that moment on? Did you think to yourself, whatever I do with my life, it's going to be something to do with the beach? Well, actually, I didn't know about careers, you know, like that. I, uh, I went to NC State University and got involved in engineering there and, you know, learned how to survey, that kind of stuff. But I wanted to be an outdoor, outdoor guy, so I got into geosciences after that, after taking a lot of engineering courses, because I realized I could be more out in the field and outside. And so my last two years at NC State, um, there was a project to survey the outer banks for beach erosion. Uh, there was a, a North Carolina Department of Transportation was very afraid of uh, NC Route 12, which is the only route down the main stem of the barrier islands there. Uh, had a lot of erosion problems. They still do, of course. Yeah, that gets it gets buried. It gets buried pretty frequently anytime there's a big storm, right? Yes. So they needed someone to go out there and start surveying to see where the erosion hotspots were. You know, it wasn't all the same all the way along. So, uh, professor who set up the the project uh, left for another university, and and the chair of the department said, "Well, I don't know much about this, Stephen. You've had survey courses. You want to take over the project?" I said, "As an undergraduate, I said, sure." 
So I, I paid my way through school the last two years going out surveying the Outer Banks in the winter because that's when the storms are mostly. I didn't have any social life, but I did. I, I left every Friday afternoon. I had a four-wheel drive Jeep because in some places you had uh, had to get through by four-wheel drive. You know, even then that was, you know, long ago. And so, you know, I, I, I kind of, I fell in love with beaches in the wintertime, even though it was a lot tougher and colder. You saw things you didn't see. And of course, a lot more shells were pushed up by the storms and a bounty of shells, but you know, it was cold and, and, and kind of tough sometimes, but uh, I, I love to learn. I learned to, I, I started understanding beaches too, how they narrowed in the winter and what was all happening. So I still didn't quite see this as a career. I got through school doing all this. Uh, and then uh, later on, I went to University of Virginia for my PhD and, and they said, well, we got a lot of erosion problems on the north end of Aztec Island and Ocean City, Maryland. And maybe somebody could go out and take measurements. And I thought, well, I know something about beaches. So you sort of accidentally did that. And I take it that this kind of Dr. Beach persona you have also was sort of an accident, right? My first job was up in Boston University, but I quickly moved to UMass Amherst, Amherst, where they wanted me to direct the National Park Service Research Unit. So I did a lot of work on Cape Cod and Fire Island, uh, a lot of things on beach erosion there and other issues. Uh, and so uh, while I was there, uh, I did a survey for the government of all of our, all of our beaches in the United States. So I went out and surveyed uh, the beaches. They want to know the level of development, particularly on Barrier Islands, which North Carolina is blessed with many of those. And so I'd seen all the beaches. And then I found myself being pulled more to Washington uh, in terms of public policy. And so at the University of Maryland, I taught a very popular course called Ways and Beaches. A uh, number of journalism students took my course, and one of them uh, ended up working for a, a very uh, renowned traveler magazine in New York City and told the editor that I was the beach guru, I was a beach professor, and I knew about all the beaches. Indeed, I had traveled around the United States and seen all the beaches as part of this national survey. This guy called me up, uh, this editor, and said, uh, Dr. Leatherman, I understand you're the beach guru, the beach professor. I said, well, I guess you could call me that. He said to me, uh, well, what are the top 10 beaches in the nation? I said, well, based on what criteria? He said, well, you've seen them all, you know, tell us which ones you like. So I rattled off beaches I just know and love, and I was on my way to China. And literally, the plane was leaving in a few hours. So I just, you know, so I didn't think much about it. I came back a couple of months later. I mean, in my box was this uh, glossy magazine that says best beaches. And I thought, well, I know a lot about beaches. I forgot to even talk to that editor. So I opened it up, and there it was. It wasn't a real article. It's just what they call a sidebar. It's just a listing with my name attached to it. And it, it put them in order. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I didn't really think of this being number one. It's just the first one I thought of. And so I didn't think much of it. Then the phone started ringing. And these convention and visitors bureaus, CVBs, which I didn't know much. I didn't know anything about those either. They're calling me up and saying, I want to know why aren't we on your list, Dr. Leatherman? And what are your criteria? And others are calling me up like... Um, Call me up and said, "Oh, we're we're number eight. That was uh, Sanibel Island. We're number eight on your list. How do we go higher next year?" So what I discovered, Tommy, was that you know people obviously love beaches and they love lists. They like this beach list thing. So I decided I got to go out and get real criteria, right? Yeah, you've got this list on your website of like fifty criteria that you look at. How how long did it take to develop all that? Well, I thought about it and I thought, well, let's go into literature, being a scientist and no one had ever rated beaches before. 
I mean, people did rate, you know, travel writers wrote, you know, rated beaches, but that was based on their own criteria, but nothing scientifically. I thought, okay, well, I can pick up those scenic factors. Obviously, beaches are very beautiful. And so, you know, and then, but I said, you know, but we got to have, and I want to do it for swimming beaches. So we have to have warm water in my criteria. So beaches in Maine and Oregon, Washington, are not going to have a chance, Northern California. Then I started thinking the physical factors, like people like the whitest sand and the, and the finest sand. And so, you know, I went through these, developed these physical factors, biological factors. Obviously, we want the beaches to be clean. I looked at a whole range of those things, that the possibilities that affect that. And then human use and impacts. What are the, is there access? I mean, it's really aggravating. If you go to a beach and it's all closed because there's no parking or no access, that's really kind of upsetting. Um, but at any rate, altogether, the, it comes down to three big factors people want. Clean water, clean sand, and beach safety. And each of those things has many variables that go into that. And so then I'd been to all the beaches. I had 60,000 slides of beaches, maps. I'd seen them all. And so it was a matter of just putting all that information together with my 50 criteria. It took me about a year or two to get it all together. So in 1991, uh, 1989 is when the editor contacted me. It took me two years to come up with the first ranking, which was 1991. And I gave it to our media office at, at uh, University of Maryland College Park uh, with a 20 page paper, you know? And, and so the, the guy there, Gary Stevenson, he threw away my whole thing. I, I put in you know, a whole bunch of beaches. He looked at the top 10 and, and put out a press release. I wanted to ask about uh, two things you mentioned along the way. One is sort of the lobbying from the different you know, visitors' bureaus and stuff. I suspect, especially now that you've been doing this a long time, that you get a lot of that, right? Well, I think more early on than now, uh, I still have people wanting to give me a red carpet treatment or some people say, you've never been around my beach and I start describing it for them. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but I don't take I don't take any gratuities. I don't get any special treatment. I mean, after I named the beach, I let the, 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 the people know about it. Okay, ahead of time, so they can plan some media, like they did for Ocracoke Island. They do a, I did a satellite media tour for them, but I didn't get paid for that. Did twenty four interviews. As you said, you picked Ocracoke this year as the as your number one on the list. That's my favorite beach too. What made it stand out for you, and, and why why did you pick that one? Well, we we mentioned about clean sand, clean water. Well, they got that in spades. I mean, tops. You know, look where it is, way out there, jutting out in the, in the Atlantic Ocean. And also it's got 16 miles of beach. Now I, I, I rated the one area where they have lifeguards and I encourage people to go with a lifeguarded beach. Otherwise you can stroll those 16 miles and if the waves are small, you'd be okay. Uh, greatest risk there of, 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 or, or any beach is rip currents. And we can talk about this a little later, but also it has historic village. It's got these charming B&Bs and inns and such. I don't know. It's just got a real blend. And the other thing that's happened recently, they have a pedestrian ferry. And I've been working with the state of North Carolina about that, saying, look, you know, you're getting a little too many cars out there. It's getting popular, and you don't want to clog that little village with all those cars. And so now they got that pedestrian ferry, which is the way I got there. When we come back, Stephen Leatherman talks about how many of America's beaches are plagued by cigarette butts. I've been down to Miami Beach in, in a one meter, three feet by three feet area, I pick up 10 cigarette butts. Now, I find this disgusting. I see birds eating it, sea turtles eating it, and kids eating it. That and more ahead on South Mountain. Before we get back to today's episode, 
I want to take just a second to let you know about the treasures we've got in the Southbound archives. We've done more than 100 episodes now. By my rough calculations, you could drive all the way from Charlotte to San Francisco, existing on nothing but Southbound episodes, plus the occasional snack. So there's bound to be something you love. Interested in music? I've done episodes with Ben Folds, Rhiannon Giddens, Anthony Hamilton, Patterson Hood, and many, many others. Comedy? How about Roy Wood Jr., Fortune Feimster, and Nate Bargatze? Sports? Dale Earnhardt Jr. and Paul Feinbaum. Fashion? Andre Leon Talley and Billy Reed. Plus so many others, from Chef Vivian Howard, to writer Rick Bragg, to actress Brooklyn Decker. I also talk to many Southerners who might not be as famous, but are doing important work. From whale watcher Clay George, to hip-hop scholar Regina Bradley. You can dive into the archives by following Southbound on any of your favorite podcast providers, or by going to wfae.org slash podcast slash Southbound. Enjoy the journey. And now, back to my conversation with Stephen Leatherman. You've been walking beaches professionally for a long, long time now. How do beaches sort of the look and feel? I'm not talking about like the science of it necessarily, but um, are beaches generally better now than they were 50 years ago? Or are they generally kind of in worse shape in terms of how people have interacted with them? Well, you know, you look at the Outer Banks. When I first went there, there were just little cottages there. And in fact, I had to stay on Manio, which is the only ho- motel open in the, in the wintertime. There was nothing available. And Elizabethan Inn, by the way, I visited it. It's a lot bigger than it used to be. And now you might say that it's too much traffic and it's overgrown. And I would, I worry about that. I worry about places becoming too popular, shall we say, because if the area has too many visitors and it's too crowded, then I have to take off points. Uh, you know, on the other hand, now we have a lot more lifeguards. When I first went there, there were no lifeguards. We didn't know anything about rip currents or beach safety. And I, I worked with a guy there, Dave Elders at uh, Kill Devil Hills. He's chief of lifeguards. They're doing a terrific job, you know, educating people, uh, saving lives and all that. So I, I, I'm glad to see all that. I mean, that's a great improvement. I also think about when I was a kid growing up on the beach in Georgia, um, there were, I seem to remember a lot more warnings about pollution, sort of environmental things. Companies, I think, back then were more likely just to dump their waste in the ocean and that kind of stuff. That seems to have improved over the years. Am I? Oh, greatly. Greatly, Tommy. Greatly. Yeah, we see that everywhere. I mean, that's not allowed anymore. That was totally tightened up. You know, in the 1970s, after we had the Santa Barbara oil spill uh, blowout, and then, of course, the river that caught fire in, in Cleveland, Ohio, and people said, oh, enough is enough. We can't have this. And that spawned the Earth Day, the founding of the U.S. Uh, VPA and all this sort of thing. So, oh, yes, we've cleaned all that up. Yeah, the United States some, has some of the cleanest beaches in the world, for sure. I've traveled around the world. I've been to uh, South America. I've been to Thailand, which, by the way, has got great beaches. But you know what? There's some of their hotels are issuing sewage out the back way, which circulates around gets to the beaches. And so, you know, you'd be surprised that uh, I went to Margarita Island in Venezuela. That's a great jewel in 
I found a lot of algae in the water and that's a tip off that, you know, something's not right. I had to jump over a fence and I found out wastewater was going in the ocean nearby. So I think the, the big thing that many of us are sort of struggling with in terms of how, how to treat beaches and how, how humans have interacted with them is that there's obviously just natural forces that happen all the time, storms and erosion and that sort of thing that change how beaches look and feel. And then there's this bigger issue of climate change and the effects of that is having. Are you able to sort of piece out or, or sort of parse out what's causing what there? Like, can you go to a beach and tell, okay, this part of it is just sort of natural erosion, but this other stuff is climate change too? And is there some way that the non-experienced can tell? Well, yes, I, I can tell you that uh, I started working on this uh, beach erosion problem um, early on, as you know, NC State and later at my graduate studies. And I went to an international conference and there was a question about why are beaches eroding? You know, and it turned out that 70% of the beaches around the world were eroding and even you know, where studies had been under, undertaken. And the only thing that tied everything together was uh, rising sea level. We discovered that the sea level was not stable. It was rising. And that is due to global warming. And so we now know for sure that um, worldwide, the sea level is rising. And what that does, we did a lot of studies on this, uh, that uh, as, a, as the water rises, it does cause the beach to retreat. It causes sediment, we call it erosion, being moved offshore. And you think, well, how can we recover that? Well, you really can't because it's part of the profile of the beach. And so, uh, so, so climate change, uh, global warming, the biggest impact as I see it, uh, one of the most clear impacts is rising sea level and beach erosion. And so that's why a lot of communities are turning to beach nourishment, which is not going to solve the problem, but it does set back the erosion clock. Well, I'd seen, and I'm sure you saw the, the footage from maybe two or three weeks ago of the, a couple of the houses on the Outer Banks that basically the ocean just swallowed up. And I think one of the, thing, one of the things I read about that was that that house, when it was built, had been like 400 feet from the ocean. And I guess what I wonder when I see something like that is, is there any reasonable way to predict that something like that's going to happen? Well, actually, there is. We have the historical data. And, and we know, for instance, look at the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse. It was built in the late 1800s. When they built that lighthouse, they surveyed out the boundaries very accurately. Okay. And from that, and it was set back uh, quite a distance. And so in 100 years, the beach had retreated 15 feet a year, 1,500 feet. And then it was right on the edge, as you probably know, when they moved it in 1999. And so, sure, we can move we can move buildings, and that's what they're doing. There are four companies that move buildings back on the Outer Banks, and that's good. Not everywhere you can move them back, though. It's a problem, but that Rodanthe is where you're talking about. Rodanthe and then where the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse was near the Buxton, these are what we call erosion hotspots. They're eroding much, much faster in general. So 15 feet a year is extraordinarily high. The average beach erosion rate on the East Coast of the United States is two feet a year. It's about two feet a year. So it adds up over, over decades. But 15 feet a year, well, there's no way you can keep a house there. And you got to realize you're going to have to move it back or lose it. What can and should we do to protect beaches in the future? First of all, like, you know, sort of thinking big picture policy terms kind of things. And then what stuff that just like regular folks like like you and I can do? 
Well, I guess in terms of protection, I'm, I'm very concerned about litter on beaches, first of all. And the biggest source of litter is cigarette butts. And I've been down to Miami Beach in, in a, a one meter, three feet by three feet area. I picked up 10 cigarette butts. Now, I find this disgusting. I see birds eating it, sea turtles eating it, and kids eating them. And these filters are cellulose, and it'll last for decades. They don't uh, decay very quickly. So I've been pushing very hard. I worked with the Hawaii years ago to make Hanama Bay Beach a, a no-smoking beach. And it's beautiful. It's a breach volcano, a nice little sandy beach, and then coral reef, and then tens of thousands of tropical fish. You can wade around there and there are tropical fish all over around you. And of course the fish are eating these uh, cigarette butts. So that was a reason to get that one going. And after a while, all the beaches on Oahu, which is where Waikiki is in Honolulu, were, become, were made no smoking. Now the whole uh, Hawaiian islands and people say, oh my gosh, even Waikiki, which is one of the top 10 world famous beaches. I said, yes, and it hasn't stopped tourism. I'm looking to make more beaches, no smoking. And I'm, if, once we get Florida under, underway, I wanna work in North Carolina and elsewhere. And the other thing that uh, concerns me, well, of course, plastics are number one. In terms of volume, numbers, it's, it's, it's uh, cigarette butts. And by the way, these beach cleaners don't pick them up very well. They kind of fall through the screens. But plastics, we need to work on plastics more. I mean, the biggest source of plastics in the ocean is from China and Southeast Asia. Do you feel like there's, you know, I think uh, some of the sort of global warming discussion, I think some people feel like it, it's almost too late to do anything now. Do you feel like there's still still time to sort of kind of turn the big ship around, so to speak? Well, it's baked in the cake now because of all the uh, you know, carbon dioxide and methane and other gases in the atmosphere that sea level is going to rise even if we stop all burning of fossil fuels for the next foreseeable future. Uh, and also China's not paying attention to it. China's building a new uh, coal-fired power plant every week. And my friends in China, everybody wants to have a car, even when there's no place to go. It's like a status symbol that you've got a car and a driver's license. India's the same way. India's got over a billion people now too. And everybody wants a car. Everybody wants to live. They see our lifestyle, I guess, and they want to emulate it. I guess you can't blame them. So this Paris Accord is not going to do much. You're spending a lot of money. I'm afraid it's, it's, it's you talk to top scientists, and they'll tell you, no, it's not going to really have any effect. We don't want to give up on trying to do the right thing. We, you know, but uh, I think this idea that we're going to phase out all carbon products, uh, fossil fuels is not going to happen. I know last year there were in some places in the southern beaches, especially there were these big sort of algae blooms like sargassum and that sort of thing. I think you wrote about that a little bit. Is that something you can predict far enough out? Like, is there anything that people should be looking out for on the beaches like this summer or anything? Well, uh, I, this year is going to be another big year. We can see the satellite data and where it happens. It comes across the Atlantic Ocean. And then once it gets to Brazil, where the Amazon River discharges in, into the ocean, boy, it just it explodes in terms of the populations. You know, we call it blooms. And, and so all those nutrients that are coming down the Amazon River are feeding the sargassum seaweed. And the, pop, the, the amount of it just multiplies 100,000 fold. And then all that stuff comes up on these offshore currents. We know of one called the Gulf Stream off our coast. It comes up and is doing a real, a lot of damage to these uh, small island countries in the Caribbean. 
I mean, the prime minister of Barbados one time said, we'd rather have a hurricane hit than this sort of gas some seaweed. I went to do a little consulting job in the British Virgin Islands a couple of years ago, and the beach was covered up to five feet. It's their gas and seaweed, and turtles can't nest. And the big, huge layers of stuff out that went out in the ocean for a thousand feet. And they say sea turtles get under them, they can't find a way to get up, and they they die of lack of oxygen. You know, Sir Gaston Seaweed's always been with us. Christopher Columbus described it, and he thought it was land at one point. And it's the only sea in the world, it's in the Atlantic Ocean, which doesn't have land boundaries. It's just a huge amount of it, and it's actually natural, and it's useful. There are certain animals that depend upon it completely for the life, uh, life cycle. But when there's so much of it coming ashore, that's a problem. Part of this is uh, the earth is warming up, but a big part of it really, I think, is uh, what's happened in the Amazon River is being deforested and for agriculture. And with agriculture there, you need to use a lot of nutrients, phosphates and nitrates to, and fertilizer to make it fertile land. And all that's running off in the Amazon River and that's feeding this, it, that's a large part of it. I, I wanna kind of bring it back around to a couple more personal things. I'm, I'm always interested in people who, do this sort of enjoyable stuff for a living. When you go to a beach now, are you able to just enjoy it or do you, does part of your brain just see it as a scientist? Well, I tell, I tell people that science can be a day at the beach. <laughs> I used to have that sign on my door, but the other professor didn't like that sign very much, okay? So I took it down. Now to answer your question, I love going out. I always go swimming. By the way, when I go go survey a beach, I always go swimming. Just to check it out, check it out. But, the conditions, can I see my feet? What's the clarity of water? Of course, I, I have more scientific ways of measuring water water clarity. People like clear water too. I do do all the things I want to do in the water, but I still, I'm still judging it, I guess. I'm still got to be the science. I, I, scientist, I can't turn that off. I have to ask one last question. You you talked early on about doing all this beach combing and being on all these beaches alone. What's the most interesting thing you've ever found beach combing? Oh, I found a skull of a uh, ward, a, a warthog. One of these hogs has a big, you know, uh, tusk on them on a beach on Horn Island, Mississippi. That was really something, a complete head with a big, you know, tusk coming out. They're very dangerous and they're huge. Found a head on one of those skulls. And I found the, on, on Cape Cod, I found the, uh, the, the tail of a, a whale. All these, these, uh, uh, they look like, uh, you know, well, there's, there's a spine, the, the ribs, you know, and I have it on my counter. And I tell people, hey, have you gone to this place that serves the big ribs? And these things are real, and they go, oh my gosh, I've never seen a rib that big before. They don't realize it's the whale of a tail, right? Tail of a whale. Stephen Leatherman is a naturally cheerful guy, but you probably heard the pessimism creep into his voice when he was talking about the future of our beaches. Beaches would be delicate things even if humans never walked the earth. As the buffer between land and sea, they're constantly shoved around by ocean currents and storms. But we have made things worse. Deforesting the rivers that feed the sea, dumping our sewage and litter, and burning so much fuel that ocean levels threaten to swallow coasts whole. And the thing of it is, the beach is exactly the place we go to forget about such things. Dr. Beach's 10 best list is like a yearly treasure map. But the treasure's not buried, 
It's right out there where the road ends and the sand begins. It belongs to us. And they're like any other treasures. We have to take care of them so they don't become just a memory. Southbound is a production of WFAE in Charlotte. Our main theme music comes from Josh Turner. You can listen to this and other episodes of Southbound on the NPR One app, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find Southbound on WFAE.org, where each episode has show notes with more information on that week's guest. See you all next time. Thanks for listening.